Part 2. From Insurgency to Civil War, 2004 to 2006. Chapter 11. The Gathering Storm. Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Part 2. From Insurgency to Civil War, 2004 to 2006, page 253. Chapter 11. The Gathering Storm, page 255. For the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq, the dramatic capture of Saddam Hussein in December 2003 brought a short-lived euphoria and sense that the campaign to stabilize the country had moved into its endgame. For the first three months of 2004, the mood within Combined Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, was cautiously optimistic, as many coalition officials assumed that without Saddam, the former regime's dead-enders would see their cause of restoring Ba'athist power evaporate. Though Anbar remained restive and an insurgency still simmered in Sunni areas, senior coalition leaders believed that the overall security situation was improving enough that it might be possible to withdraw forces to a caretaker level within a year. To that end, CJTF-7 drew up plans that blended offensive operations with stability and support operations and aimed to improve training for the Iraqi security forces. Because they believed their mission had likely turned a corner, coalition leaders instructed their units to begin to pull back from the Iraqi population centers to concentrate on large operating bases and begin to turn over security and political responsibility to the Iraqis. Unfortunately, CJTF-7's focus and positive mood did not match the actual situation. Despite Saddam's capture, the Sunni insurgency, which mostly had not looked to him for operational leadership, had reached a state of maturity in which disparate groups could communicate, plan, and execute operations both geographically and across time as part of a greater strategy. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's Tawid wal-Jihad, though not the strongest component in the vast Sunni insurgency, was gaining strength and formulating a campaign plan of its own that aimed to incite civil war. At the same time, the coalition cast about for options to address the increasingly troublesome Muqtada Sadr and his burgeoning militant following. Turbulence Within the Coalition Page 255 Planning for the Handover in 2004 Zarqawi and Sadr were among numerous emerging threats whose severity most coalition leaders did not sufficiently appreciate. As insurgents across the country grew in strength in the first weeks of 2004, the coalition continued with its planned replacement of nearly every brigade and division in the country by follow-on forces, some of which would arrive with expectations of a Balkans-style stabilization mission. With this view in mind, CJTF-7's undermanned staff developed a draft campaign plan that melded continued offensive operations with stability and support operations, responsibility for which would be transferred in the not-too-distant future to the Iraqis, or another competent force. The command's draft mission statement, which in the course of events was never approved or published, reflected this bifurcated objective, quote, CJTF-7 conducts offensive operations to defeat remaining non-compliant forces and neutralize the destabilizing influences in the area of operations to create a secure environment in direct support of the Office of Coalition Provisional Authority. Concurrently support the establishment of governance and economic development to set the conditions for a transfer of operations to a designated follow-on military or civilian authorities. End quote. For CJTF-7 Commander Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez, the mission at the outset of 2004 was a continuation of the destruction of Saddam's regime, and CJTF-7 officers still considered their units in Phase 3 operations. Quote, We had shattered the enemy, changed the regime, recalled CJTF-7's lead planner, and now what we needed to do was continue offensive operations, i.e. pursuit operations, of the remnants of the Iraqi army and the Saddam Fedayeen to complete their destruction and allow us to move forward. End quote. 
At the same time, in areas where the destruction of these forces had been mostly accomplished, CJTF-7 considered that its units should be conducting stability and support operations and carrying out reconstruction efforts similar to those the Army had done in the Balkans. The command's focus on transitioning its mission to someone else included a process of withdrawing from areas of contact with the Iraqi population and turning over tactical security missions to Iraqi forces. Quote, The plan is to work very aggressively to build Iraqi capacity by February or March, to turn over control and to pull out base camps, end quote, Sanchez told Iraqi politician Sharif Ali bin Hussein on December 28, 2003, adding that after the move, quote, quick reaction forces would be positioned to respond as necessary, end quote. As early as January 4, 2004, CJTF-7 was working out procedures for coalition units to hand over the responsibility for security to the Iraqis and turn over regional or local political control as well. Initial assessments held that the Iraqi police, considered the linchpin of relinquishing coalition responsibility, would not be ready until October 2004, but the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, or ICDC, could be ready sooner, potentially as early as March or April. On the ground, Sanchez's guidance to withdraw from areas of contact translated into a decreasing coalition footprint and a shrinking number of forward operating bases. The 1st Armored Division in Multinational Division Baghdad, or MNDB, was emblematic of this effort. Having occupied 46 temporary forward operating bases as of May 2003, the division had reduced to just 26 in January 2004, of which its replacement, the 1st Cavalry Division, would occupy only eight. On February 10th, Sanchez briefed visiting Ambassador Robert D. Blackwell, Deputy Assistant to the President and Head of the Iraq Stabilization Group at the National Security Council, or NSC, on CJTF-7's plans for coalition withdrawal from the cities. The CJTF-7 commander revealed that, quote, In Baghdad we are shutting down and pulling our forces out of the city. By the time that 1st Cavalry Division arrives, we will have pulled all of our forces to the perimeter except 2 BCT, which provides security for the Green Zone. End quote. After the withdrawal, Sanchez explained, U.S. units would be concentrated on the southern outskirts of Baghdad, and any further need for them in the city would be worked out by coalition and Iraqi officials at joint coordination centers. Sanchez's plans to pull back from Iraqi population centers soon were copied at lower unit levels. While each coalition unit created a mission statement that blended its commander's priorities with guidance from higher headquarters, many CJTF-7 units wrote their missions to mirror closely Sanchez's own. For example, the plan for the newly arrived 3rd Brigade 2nd Infantry Division, a striker brigade combat team, encompassed all of the key aspects of CJTF-7's campaign plan, including to capture or kill remaining non-compliant forces, assist in the development of Iraqi forces, and transition responsibility for maintaining civil order to Iraqi security and police forces. The Decision for a Four-Star Headquarters Despite CJTF-7 leaders' confidence that they had begun to get their arms around the problem of stabilizing the country, the command's difficulties in fall 2003 had convinced senior Department of Defense, or DOD, leaders that CJTF-7 needed to be replaced by a larger, more capable headquarters with a four-star commander. Meeting with Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF Donald Rumsfeld, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff in December 2003, General John Abizade and Coalition Forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC, Commander Lieutenant General David McKiernan, explained in detail that the single three-star headquarters of CJTF-7 was not sufficient to manage both the day-to-day -day requirements of the operational fight and the heavy load of strategic and diplomatic responsibilities. Acknowledging the force of McKiernan's arguments, Rumsfeld approved the change in principle, but had quietly instructed Chief of Staff of the Army, General Peter J. Shoemaker, after the meeting that, whatever new command the military devised for Iraq, McKiernan was not to be allowed to command it himself. Ignorant of Rumsfeld's guidance, U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, and McKiernan's Third Army first explored a course of action that entailed reactivating the Third Army as the CFLCC for Iraq and moving it to Baghdad to become the strategic-level headquarters. This plan progressed far enough, in fact, that some of McKiernan's staff deployed to Kuwait for a two-week conference in January 2004 to finalize their plans for reassuming the Iraq mission. 
During the exercise, however, Rumsfeld's December guidance caught up to the planning process, and CENTCOM instead decided that the already deployed 5th Corps headquarters that had formed the core of CJTF-7 would also form the core of the new four-star theater headquarters, initially to be named the Coalition Forces Command. Under this plan, Abizade intended that Sanchez would be nominated for a fourth star and stay on as the strategic commander, with his headquarters to be filled in using individual augmentees for its initial and follow-on rotations. When this new strategic headquarters stood up in May 2004, operational-level responsibilities would devolve to the newly deployed Third Corps headquarters commanded by Lieutenant General Thomas F. Metz, which had arrived in January. However, awkwardly in the interim, Third Corps would merge with the CJTF-7 headquarters to replace individuals who were redeploying and to fill out more fully the skeleton CJTF-7 staff, which at that point still had not climbed above 60% of its planned strength. As Sanchez became theater commander, Metz, who had commanded infantry units at all levels, would assume the role of Sanchez's deputy for operations, running the day-to-day -day battle rhythm of the headquarters, allowing Sanchez to focus on working with the CPA, CENTCOM, and U.S. officials in Washington. Not even a year into the mission, it had become clear that saddling an augmented corps headquarters with both the operational and strategic levels of command had been a mistake. The V Corps that had formed the basis of CJTF-7 was a single-service army organization accustomed in practice and doctrine to managing high tactical and operational levels of war. Though Army Corps headquarters with joint augmentation had been used as short-term joint task force headquarters for less complex and smaller operations in the past, such as Operation Just Cause in Panama and Operation Uphold Democracy in Haiti, the scope and complexity of the Iraq mission had proved to be too much for this model. Compared to previous operations, V Corps had been assigned more subordinate elements, a more complex mission, and more personnel by roughly a five to tenfold order of magnitude. A Cascade of Transitions During the first three months of 2004, at the same time that DOD leaders planned for a change at the top of the coalition structure, nearly all of the coalition's combat power was scheduled to rotate out of country, creating massive requirements for personnel. As CJTF-7 worked with the Institutional Army to fill those requirements, Army leaders rejected the idea of using the year-long individual rotation policy, a model that many of the Army's senior leaders had judged to be a contributing factor in the Army's failure in Vietnam. As a result, in most areas of operations, divisions replaced divisions and brigades replaced brigades in a one-for-one -one unit swap. In Multinational Division North Central, or MNDNC, covering Salahadin, Kirkuk, and Diala provinces, Major General John Patiste and the 1st Infantry Division replaced Major General Raymond T. Odierno and the 4th Infantry Division in March. In MNDB, Major General Peter W. Corelli and the 1st Infantry Division replaced Major General Martin E. Dempsey and the 1st Armored Division in March and April. Unlike later transitions, the units that arrived in early 2004 tended to come as organic sets, bringing their assigned subordinate units with them. The 1st Cavalry Division, for example, arrived with its three maneuver brigades and organic support resources from Fort Hood, Texas, each with its own assigned subordinate battalions. In most cases, the arriving commanders and units had worked together as teams prior to deployment, a factor that facilitated the concept known as mission command, allowing leaders to better assign missions in the heat of battle because senior leaders would know their subordinates' strengths and weaknesses. The handover of Anbar province was less smooth. The coalition presence there had been turbulent in the years since the invasion, with responsibility for the province passing from Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force West, or CJSOTFW, to the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, and then to a headquarters element from 82nd Airborne Division with two subordinate brigades, 3rd Brigade 82nd Airborne Division and 1st Brigade 1st Infantry Division, in the space of 10 months. In February and March, the ad hoc division organization in MNFW gave way to 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st MEF, commanded by Lieutenant General James T. Conway. 
Deviating from standard procedure, the Marine element in Anbar had a three-star commander but also maintained the two-star 1st Marine Division as an intermediate headquarters, with the 1st and 7th Marine Regimental Combat Teams as subordinate elements for the division. Marine leaders had also explored the advantages and disadvantages of various rotational policies and decided that combat units and squadrons would rotate as organizations every six to seven months, in contrast to the Army's year-long rotations. Higher headquarters, such as the 1st MEF and 1st Marine Division, would deploy for a year but would rotate individual personnel every six or seven months. Explaining the decision, Marine Corps Commandant General Michael W. Hagee stated that the six- to seven-month rotation would, quote, permit much more flexibility in meeting global requirements while maintaining unit cohesion, end quote. Such a schedule would almost mirror the Marine Corps Unit Deployment Program, a rotational schedule established after the Vietnam War, in which each unit followed a pattern that included a six-month forward deployment, followed by a year-long period at its home station. With three U.S. divisions assigned to Baghdad, Anbar, and the North Center region centered on Tikrit, respectively, CJTF-7 was left without enough incoming units in early 2004 to replace the 101st Airborne Division with another division-sized unit. Believing that Mosul and the surrounding region had been rendered fundamentally more stable than the rest of Central and Northern Iraq by the year-long efforts of Major General David H. Petraeus and the 101st Airborne Division, CJTF-7 leaders decided Multinational Division Northwest, or MNDNW, could be made an economy of force mission within the coalition. Accordingly, in February, the 25,000 troops of the 101st Airborne Division were replaced by the ad hoc Task Force Olympia, commanded by Brigadier General Carter F. Ham, with a reinforced striker brigade beneath him, making a total of 10,000 troops in the renamed Multinational Brigade Northwest, or MNBNW. When the changeover occurred, the significantly smaller Task Force Olympia took responsibility for a huge geographic area that included the provinces of Nineveh, Dahuk, and Erbil, even though almost all of their combat power resided in Nineveh province. Suleimania province, which had previously been part of the 101st Airborne Division's area of responsibility, was handed off to MNDNC in recognition of Task Force Olympia's reduced combat power. Ham's ad hoc headquarters had a total of just 80 people drawn from the Army's 1st Corps, meaning it lacked many of the critical capabilities and depth that Petraeus's division had possessed. The new task force also lacked a military intelligence battalion with its internal analysis element and had only three colonels across the entire organization, including the striker brigade commander. In addition to being smaller, the second rotation of Operation Iraqi Freedom units reflected a sharp increase in the reserve component's contribution, which constituted 32% of total U.S. forces, 37,209 of 118,043 troops, a higher percentage than during the invasion. These reserve units generally provided combat support and combat service support, and only in rare cases, such as that of the 39th Infantry Brigade of the Arkansas National Guard in MNDB and the 30th Infantry Brigade from the North Carolina National Guard in MNDNC, were reserve units responsible for their own area of operations or battle space. By mid-March, with the majority of transitions complete except for in Baghdad, the number of troops in Iraq had dwindled to 95,000 Americans and 25,000 from various coalition countries, a total of 12 U.S. brigades and two loosely defined coalition divisions. Supporting these forces, on paper at least, would be 40,000 Iraqi soldiers in the ICDC, four battalions of the new Iraqi army, and 60,000 Iraqi police. Equipping the Second Rotation In addition to a reduced overall troop level, the U.S. units arriving for the second rotation of Operation Iraqi Freedom were bringing with them less combat equipment than the invasion forces they were replacing. Sharing CJTF-7's assumptions about an improving security situation, U.S. Army Forces Command and the Army writ large discouraged the second rotation of divisions from deploying with their full complement of combat vehicles and weapons systems, which Army planners assumed was of marginal use in stability operations. In the most notable case, Corelli and the 1st Cavalry Division were initially prohibited from bringing their tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles into Iraq. 
Only after adamantly protesting to McKiernan and obtaining his support for a full complement of armored vehicles was Corelli able to secure permission to bring about a third of his division's tanks and Bradleys to Baghdad. Other units found themselves forced to leave their artillery tubes behind, with their gunners dragooned into provisional motorized infantrymen. Corelli's difficulties reflected the fact that the Army's centralized equipping plans had not caught up to the growing dangers on the ground. The need for protection against rising numbers of improvised explosive devices, or IED, reflected this disconnect as well. In order to meet CJTF-7's skyrocketing requirements for armored wheeled vehicles, Army leaders decided to fund a mix of tested add-on armor kits and up-armored high-mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicles, or HMMWV. Because the existing production lines were nowhere near capable of producing sufficient numbers of up-armored vehicles, a majority of the program to increase protection for coalition forces involved add-on armor kits. By January 2004, the Army had developed a plan to provide add-on armor protection for 8,400 HMMWVs, 2,700 medium tactical vehicles, and 1,080 heavy expanded mobility tactical trucks an enormous amount compared to the mere 354 vehicles with add-on armor and 829 M1114 up-armored HMMWVs already on the ground in Iraq. The Special Operations Rotations By late 2003, the Special Operations community recognized that the mission in Iraq was going to last far longer than originally anticipated and create a severe resourcing problem. With the 5th and 10th Special Forces groups rotating headquarters every seven months, nearly 40% of the Army's Special Forces assets were already in Iraq. The 5th Special Forces group had deployed near-continuously since the September 11, 2001, or 9-11, attacks, having taken part in the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. The 10th Special Forces group, meanwhile, was committed outside of its normal European command operating area, which had required the cancellation of several European security cooperation deployments and partnership exercises. This overcommitment led to discussion among Special Operations Forces leaders about what a sustainable Army Special Forces rotational cycle should look like. An initial plan in fall 2003 had judged that a single Special Forces company was sufficient for the Iraq mission, but the worsening security situation obviated that plan, and instead, one composite battalion comprised of companies from both groups served as the Army Special Forces footprint until January 2004. The still deteriorating security situation and the near-insatiable need for local information that Special Forces provided soon made even that level of force insufficient, forcing a re-evaluation of the long-term footprint. After the initial turbulence, the CJSOTF's makeup was eventually settled at two Special Forces Battalions and a Navy Sea, Air, and Land Teams, or SEAL, Special Warfare Task Unit, a force nearly nine times as large as the Fall 2003 assessment deemed appropriate. That force level would remain the Special Operations Force's commitment for most of the remainder of the war. After considerable debate and a proposal to stand up a provisional group headquarters based in Iraq, the Institutional Special Forces Headquarters determined that the CJSOTF headquarters would be provided in turn by the 5th and 10th Special Forces groups every six or seven months. The new single headquarters was named CJSOTF Arabian Peninsula, or CJSOTF-AP. The Maturation of the Enemy, page 262. For many coalition leaders, the capture of Saddam on December 13, 2003 brought a sense that perhaps, finally, the Iraqi resistance would see the futility of its struggle to restore the old political order and choose to lay down its arms. However, this hope was illusory. By the beginning of 2004, the Sunni resistance was maturing into a traditional insurgency, with various organizations employing classic guerrilla strategies. The prolific Sunni resistance was comprised of disparate groups, former regime elements, xenophobic nationalists, members of the Global Jihadist Network, and criminal opportunists. For most of these groups, the Syrian regime provided safe haven and external support by harboring former regime elements and facilitating the flow of foreign fighters for whom Iraq had become a cause célèbre, attracting jihadists from across the Muslim world. 
While the capture of Saddam did not create the much-hoped-for collapse of the resistance, to a degree it did spark an internal conflict among the Sunni resistance groups over whom would succeed Saddam as the leading symbol of opposition to the occupation. This internal conflict occurred principally between what coalition analysts would call former regime loyalists, who had wanted to restore Saddam's regime to power, and former regime elements, who sought the broader goal of restoring Sunni primacy, but were not committed to restoring Saddamist rule. After Saddam's capture, the former regime elements clearly began to supersede the former regime loyalists, but more importantly, as Saddam's capture dispelled the cult of personality surrounding him, many members of the Sunni resistance began to migrate from groups loyal to the old regime into religious extremist groups. Salafi militant groups, in particular, benefited from the leadership vacuum left by Saddam's capture. By early 2004, the influx of local Iraqi recruits to Salafi organizations had converted Toweed Wal Jihad, for example, from a predominantly foreign terrorist organization to a group in which Iraqis constituted a majority of the rank and file. Meanwhile, in Anbar province, coalition officials judged that a plurality of the province's 57 insurgent groups had adopted Islamic rhetoric and policies. In addition to this shift from Baathism to Islamism within the insurgency, the eclipse of the old regime in late 2003 created tensions between foreign insurgent leaders and local Iraqi insurgent leaders. In the view of many Iraqi insurgent commanders, the foreign fighters in Iraq should subordinate themselves to native resistance leaders, as the Arab Mujahideen had done in the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan. Zarqawi in particular had discarded this Afghan model in Iraq. Though Zarqawi reportedly assured Iraqi insurgents in June 2003 that he merely wished to, quote, assist his Iraqi brothers to win the fight against the occupation, end quote, by late 2003 the Jordanian was staking his claim to leadership of the entire insurgency. Senior Iraqi insurgent leader Mahmoud Janabi later recounted that in mid-November 2003, Iraqi insurgents in Fallujah had rejected Zarqawi's demand that they should fall under his command, leading Zarqawi's Jordanian lieutenant Abu Anas al-Shami to warn the Iraqis that, quote, We, the Toweed Wal Jihad, will leave Iraq to some other land as long as you do not agree to form an armed group under the leadership of Zarqawi, end quote. Nevertheless, this internal fracturing of the Sunni insurgency led to few outright acts of violence between the disparate groups in this early phase of the war, and the intra-insurgency tensions were more properly characterized as a competition for the moral and financial support that would accompany being perceived as the strongest resistance group. Despite their internal struggle, the groups generally worked toward the common goal of expelling the coalition. There was also considerable consensus among the groups about how to achieve this objective, blocking reconstruction efforts, isolating coalition forces from the population, separating pro-coalition Iraqi leaders from the population, reducing public confidence in the nascent Iraqi government, and fracturing the multinational coalition. Coalition assessments in early 2004 tended to characterize the insurgency as disconnected, locally supported organizations without operational-level planning or objectives. These assessments missed the degree to which many of the former regime elements retained the military-style organization and planning they had possessed before the fall of Saddam. They also missed the degree to which jihadist networks nested their operational-level activities under the ideological and strategic umbrella of al-Qaeda. In fact, during November 2003, Osama bin Laden had recognized the value of the Iraq conflict for his broader strategy and had begun providing $1.5 million a month to support the Iraqi insurgency. In order to determine which groups should be rewarded with this support, bin Laden dispatched several al-Qaeda senior leaders, including Hassan Ghul and Abdul Hadi al-Iraqi, to Iraq to assess the various insurgent factions and identify a commander who could serve as emir, or leader, of an Iraqi al-Qaeda franchise. As part of this process, the al-Qaeda men asked each insurgent leader to provide a war plan or strategy document explaining how they would conduct operations in Iraq. Among the first candidates that al-Qaeda's corporate recruiters vetted was Zarqawi, who was hiding in Fallujah. Though the Sunni insurgency of early 2004 lacked a formal hierarchical structure or single operational-level brain that could issue orders to its subordinate elements, there was a surprising level of coordination among the various war councils that comprised what some coalition officials described as the Sunni Arab resistance or Sunni Arab rejectionists. 
One of the most notable examples of these councils with operational reach beyond its local area was the Ramadi Shura Council headed by Muhammad Mahmoud Latif, a Sufi cleric whose objectives were to restore Sunnis to power in Iraq and increase Islamic religious influence in government. Some of the militant groups represented in the Ramadi Shura Council received financial support from family members of former regime leaders hiding in Syria and Jordan, such as Saddam's daughter, Rana Saddam Hussein, and Sa'ad Tariq Aziz, the son of former foreign minister Tariq Aziz. This cash flow enabled the insurgency in Ramadi to become more sophisticated and better coordinated than in other locations. In addition, the Karbit family, well known throughout Iraq for the fortune it had amassed as industrial-scale smugglers under Saddam, provided considerable funding for a variety of Ramadi-based insurgent organizations. One notable effect of the insurgency's operations was the thwarting of the coalition's hopes for quick reconstruction of the Iraqi state and economy. With its exposed electrical grid and oil pipelines that stretched hundreds of miles, Iraq's vulnerable critical infrastructure was among the first targets against which the Sunni resistance acted in a coordinated fashion. By the end of 2003, infrastructure attacks were so frequent that the Kellogg, Brown & Root Restore Iraqi Oil Project was having difficulty keeping employees on the job due to the dangers. During the month of November 2003 alone, five Kellogg, Brown, and Root employees were killed and 26 wounded in 18 separate attacks. Interrupting the flow of oil or electricity damaged the population's trust in its new government and reduced the oil revenues the government had to fund development projects. Infrastructure attacks were also powerful signals of coalition ineffectiveness and lack of control. When Iraqis in Baghdad suffered random electricity brownouts, they tended to blame the coalition rather than their own increased energy consumption or insurgent attacks on the electrical grid. Like the attacks against infrastructure, IEDs began to have a significant impact on coalition operations as they became the weapon of choice among insurgents. Early IEDs were predominantly command-detonated explosives controlled by a trigger connected by wire, radio link, or cell phone to the weapon. This method permitted insurgents to target their objectives selectively and allowed less tactically skilled insurgents to conduct attacks. As coalition casualties from IEDs rose, coalition leaders promulgated new force protection rules. Only armored vehicles were allowed to leave forward operating bases and personnel had to travel in larger convoys. To minimize their exposure to IEDs or ambushes, coalition convoys tended to travel at high speeds using extreme offensive driving techniques, a practice that riled Iraqi drivers and further reduced contact between coalition troops and the Iraqi population. As weapons, IEDs were asymmetric in every sense of the word. They turned the American and coalition strength of greater combat power into a liability and created a wedge between the coalition and the people. The insurgent tactic of hiding among the population made separating friendly Iraqis from enemy combatants challenging. IEDs also frustrated many soldiers and leaders because the devices allowed insurgents to kill or maim coalition personnel nearly anonymously and made the capture of the perpetrators difficult. A few soldiers and leaders took out this frustration on Iraqis, as in the January 3, 2004 incident, in which soldiers from 1st Battalion, 8th Infantry, an element of the 4th Infantry Division stationed in Samarra, ordered two Iraqi civilians to jump into the Tigris River as punishment for being out after curfew. After one of the two Iraqi men drowned, the soldiers' ethical failure was compounded when the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Sassaman, told the troops involved to lie about the incident to Army investigators. Frustrated by his unit's casualties and disillusioned with how the war was being prosecuted, Sassaman had clashed with his brigade commander, Colonel Frederick S. Rudesheim, accusing him of appeasing Sunni insurgents. Sassaman had grown impatient with the challenge of differentiating between good and bad Iraqis and adopted punitive measures such as employing white phosphorus artillery shells to burn farmland used as insurgent firing positions and utilizing anti-tank missiles to destroy houses owned by suspected insurgents and smugglers. Punishing curfew violators by throwing them in a river and then crushing their truck under the treads of a Bradley fighting vehicle were in keeping with Sassaman's view of how the war should be fought. Ultimately, Sassaman's leadership failure was discovered, and he was reprimanded for impeding an investigation. 
The two soldiers most directly involved in the January 3rd drowning were convicted by a court-martial and sentenced to short prison terms of six months and 45 days, respectively. The Sunni insurgency fractures the coalition. In the first months of 2004, the Sunni Arab rejectionists continued their strategy of targeting what they perceived to be weaker coalition members in order to force them to withdraw from Iraq. The insurgents appeared to focus first on inflicting casualties on countries whose elected political leaders supported military operations in Iraq but whose populations opposed the war. Driving these coalition members out would not only reduce the coalition's combat power, but also spread the remaining forces more thinly across the country. It would also reduce the number of countries in the coalition, a political bellwether that would affect the degree of international support for the mission. The aftermath of the November 12, 2003 attack against the Italian headquarters in Nasiriya seemed to validate the insurgents' approach, as the strike prompted the Italian government to restrict its forces' activities significantly. Major General Andrew Stewart, the British commander of Multinational Division Southeast, or MNDSE, to whom the Italian contingent reported, observed that the Nasiriya attack placed the Italian contingent in a difficult political position. Quote, I was told that the commander of the Italian brigade in Nasiriya received two telephone calls a week personally from Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, Stewart wrote later. Whether or not he did, he was under considerable political pressure not to lose another soldier because if he did, Berlusconi's premiership would be under severe threat. End quote. The attack contributed to the Italian government's eventual decision in March 2005 to withdraw its 3,000 troops, the fourth largest Allied contingent in Iraq. Next to be targeted was Spain. On March 11, 2004, terrorists affiliated with al-Qaeda bombed the Atocha train station in Madrid, killing nearly 200 civilians. The group responsible billed the attack as a response to so-called Western injustices in Iraq and Afghanistan and promised more bloodshed if the injustices did not stop. The bombing had an immediate impact on the coalition, as it was at least partly responsible for the Spanish government's defeat in the country's general election just three days later, as the terrorists clearly intended. The new anti-war Spanish government hastily withdrew its 1,300 personnel by the end of April 2004, just seven weeks after the attacks, and Honduras and the Dominican Republic quickly followed suit with their nearly 700 combined personnel. The sudden departure of the Spaniards and their partners created a brigade-sized gap in Multinational Division Central South, or MNDCS. With MNDCS losing about a fifth of its personnel and one-third of its brigade combat teams, and its total strength dropping to about 6,000 troops, CJTF-7 had to fill the shortfall on a stopgap basis, first by the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, and later by 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division. Searching for a long-term solution, CJTF-7 leaders tried to convince their British counterparts to expand the boundaries of MNDSE and assume control of the rump MNDCS as well as all nine of the southern Shia provinces. U.S. military leaders also asked the United Kingdom to deploy the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps under a North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, flag to assume command and control of the expanded effort, a request that Prime Minister Tony Blair and his government mulled over for several months before rejecting it in summer 2004. In May, Sunni insurgents would try the same strategy again, this time targeting South Korea as that country prepared to deploy more than 3,000 additional troops to assist in security and reconstruction activities in the Kurdistan region. Insurgents believed to be from Sarkawi's Toweed Wal Jihad captured a South Korean contractor and threatened to murder him if South Korea did not withdraw all its forces. Unlike the Spanish case, the South Korean government continued its troop deployment and Zarqawi's men beheaded the Korean captive in late June. Despite their failure with the Koreans, the Sunni insurgents were clearly aiming to defeat a key component of the original American plan, that the United States would be able to internationalize the Iraqi mission and turn over a significant share of the security responsibilities and reconstruction efforts to coalition partners, non-governmental organizations, or international organizations like the United Nations or UN. Indeed, as of early 2004, many Fifth Corps staffers continued to work under the assumption that a NATO force would be arriving, perhaps even in 2004, to take charge of the entire mission from CJTF-7.
The spate of insurgent attacks against these allies, as well as assaults against the UN and the Red Cross, ended all hope of such a handover and severely hampered reconstruction efforts across the country. By early 2004, Sunni insurgents were targeting international aid and reconstruction organizations, kidnapping aid workers and contractors, often brutally killing them in videotaped beheadings designed to scare away the engineers, technicians, and development experts who had volunteered to assist in Iraq's rebuilding. While this campaign of intimidation spanned all of 2004 and beyond, during the month of April, insurgents carried out several high-profile kidnappings of Americans who were later brutally beheaded, including the contractor Nicholas Berg. Zarqawi aims for civil war Within the broader Sunni insurgency that focused on thwarting and expelling the U.S.-led occupation force, a smaller insurgent strain was driven by an additional dark motive. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi believed the Shia majority was the most dangerous threat to Sunni interests in Iraq and the surrounding region, even more dangerous than the American occupation. In order to prevent what he expected to be a sectarian liquidation of Sunnis by Iraq's majority Shia, Zarqawi had decided he should provoke the Shia into a sectarian war, thereby forcing the mobilization of Iraq's Sunni population as well as, more importantly, the global Sunni population. In the third week of January 2004, Kurdish forces captured Hassan Ghul as he was returning to al-Qaeda's senior leaders in Pakistan with a letter containing Zarqawi's proposed strategy calling for attacks on the Iraqi Shia to create a civil war. In his letter, Zarqawi identified the Shia as the true enemy of Salafi jihadists, representing a greater danger than coalition forces. Quote, the unhurried observer and inquiring onlooker will realize that Shiism is the looming danger and the true challenge, end quote, he wrote. As Zarqawi saw it, the Shia were, quote, the insurmountable obstacle, the lurking snake, the crafty and malicious scorpion, the spying enemy, and the penetrating venom. They are the enemy. Beware of them. Fight them, end quote. Stoking fears deeply held by many Sunnis, some of which would later be matched by reality, Zarqawi argued that, quote, The Badr Brigade, which is the military wing of the Supreme Council of the Islamic Revolution, has shed its Shia garb and put on the garb of the police and the army in its place, end quote. The Shia in the Iraqi security forces would soon start to, quote, liquidate the Sunnis under the pretext that they are the saboteurs, remnants of the Ba'ath, and terrorists spreading evil in the land, end quote, Zarqawi predicted. The only way for the Sunnis to avoid being exterminated, Zarqawi argued, was to strike at the Shia as their main objective, before the coalition and Americans. As the Shia responded to this sectarian war, it would, quote, Awaken the inattentive Sunnis as they feel imminent danger and annihilating death, end quote, after which the global Sunni community would rise up and come to the Iraqi Sunnis' aid. Beyond his claims to be protecting the Sunni community, Zarqawi himself was driven by ideology and pure hatred of Shiism. Zarqawi preached that the Shia were religious idolaters who performed ceremonies and held beliefs that were heretical to his extremist version of Islam. In Zarqawi's view, drawn from that of the medieval Sunni extremist philosopher Ibn Taymiyyah, the Shia were worse than Jews and Christians because they had seen the light of true Islam and had chosen instead to stray off what he believed was the straight path. For that sin, Zarqawi described the Shia as atheists several times in his letter. This extreme antipathy toward the Shia was put into practice and made clear in early 2004. In March, Zarqawi's attempts to foment sectarian violence focused on the Shia religious day of Ashura, when a series of complex attacks in Karbala and Baghdad killed nearly 200 Shia pilgrims and wounded another 500. While the Ashura attacks were the most spectacular among Zarqawi's early efforts to inspire a civil war, a steady drumbeat of smaller sectarian killings and bombings would continue throughout 2004, building momentum toward the civil war that Zarqawi intended to start. Prophetically, the CJTF-7 Red Cell, which acted as an independent think tank for General Sanchez, identified the danger that Zarqawi posed, noting in a February assessment, quote, The assassination of Grand Ayatollah Ali Husseini Sistani or the destruction of a revered mosque such as the Imam Ali Mosque in Najaf 
would send reverberations throughout the Shia world and direct Shia anger both at Sunni Arabs and the coalition. This could spark wide-scale Shia on Sunni violence in Iraq, particularly in areas where both communities are mixed, such as Baghdad or Basra, which could, in turn, lead to countrywide ethno-religious violence, causing Iraqi society to factionalize and shattering hope of national unity. End quote. While the coalition used the captured Zarqawi letter as a part of an information operations campaign to try to discredit the Sunni insurgency, the January 2004 revelation that Toweed Wal-Jihad and its leader intended to plunge the country into a Sunni-Shia war had little impact on the coalition's operational planning, even though the letter's contents were well understood and its significance acknowledged by a number of senior coalition officials. The only coalition elements to recognize and act upon the scale of the danger were special operations forces, which, in February, made Zarqawi their primary focus. Even so, the evolution in their targeting would occur slowly, and 50% of their operations until July 2004 were prosecuted against targets unrelated to Zarqawi and his organization. The coalition had been handed, by Providence, the war strategy of one of its most dangerous opponents— but coalition operational commanders did not make preventing civil war a central part of their campaign plans. In retrospect, it was a strategically significant missed opportunity, akin to Union General George McClellan's failure to act on captured Confederate plans ahead of the Battle of Antietam. Iranian Moves As Zarqawi set in motion his strategy to provoke a civil war to restore Sunni ascendancy in Iraq, the Iranian regime was making its own moves to solidify Shia control and ensure its long-term influence. Iraq's borders with Iran were almost completely unsecured, and at a coalition meeting to address the problem on February 7, 2004, Ambassador L. Paul Bremer noted that, quote, We have no border policy, no capacity to enforce it even if we had a policy, and no Iraqi diplomatic system to support issuing visas, end quote. The Iranian regime was exploiting this policy and enforcement vacuum, sending agents and businessmen into southern Iraq to garner influence and lay the groundwork for larger elements and capabilities to arrive. Some Iranian agents were detained, but these were likely only a small portion of those that had been sent. One indication of the scope of the problem came in the December 2003 release of 41 Iranian detainees from the Camp Bukha detention facility, including the CENTCOM-authorized release of four IRGC members captured in the late spring. The Iranian regime was using additional means to exert influence as well, including flooding southern Iraq with Iranian immigrants, some of whom were buying up so much Iraqi property that their actions created a housing bubble that drove up property values significantly. Some coalition officials, such as Karbala Governorate Coordinator Ambassador John Berry, judged that the Iranians' actions constituted the early phases of an insurgency. Iranian operatives had allegedly attempted to assassinate Iraqi political and security leaders, including the Karbala police chief, and were attempting to co-opt Iraqi interpreters working for the coalition. A January 2004 CJTF-7 report assessed that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, Codes Force was directing the Badr Corps to assassinate former regime members across southern Iraq, amounting to a violent debothification campaign that had killed at least 43. The effort was so advanced that Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, had begun collaborating with the Dawa Party in its search for Baathists, even establishing a council that proposed and approved targets. The Iranians had also tried to stack the Najaf Provincial Council with pro-Iranian SCIRI members through intimidation and threats. Finally, some coalition officials believed they detected an Iranian hand in the bombing of the Coalition Provisional Authority facility in Karbala in December 2003. The Iranian regime's strategic purpose for these actions was debated extensively among CJTF-7, the CPA, and U.S. officials in Washington. Some argued the Iranian regime was simply acting in self-interest by injecting reconstruction funds and capital as a means of stabilizing southern Iraq and preventing the violence from spilling over the border. Others judged the Iranians were trying to gain control over southern Iraq without firing a shot via population transfers, financial support, civic aid projects, and propaganda. Still others perceived a malignant nature in Iranian actions. From Karbala, Berry reported to the CPA his assessment that, quote, 
All of the recent moves in recent weeks are part and parcel of a master plan directed by Iran to create a sphere of influence in the Shiite heartland, starting with the two holy cities. Iran is eager to split Iraq into three semi-autonomous zones and wants to extend Iranian control in the south, which, in addition to emasculating its old enemy, Iraq, would guarantee its dominion over the two holy cities, Najaf and Karbala, the income they derive from pilgrims, estimated between 1.5 and 3 million people a year, and the prestige of having them back in the same orbit as Qom. End quote. Recommendations for how to respond to the Iranian regime's actions were as disparate as the assessments of Iranian motives. Deputy Sekdef Paul Wolfowitz had long recommended that only the worst Iranian regime proxies, such as Muqtada Sadr and his militias, should be engaged by force, and that the coalition should co-opt other Iranian-associated groups, especially SCIRI. Others, such as CPA Najaf Governorate Coordinator Richard G. Olson, argued that the situation in Najaf was, quote, fundamentally unstable, end quote, and that the coalition should establish a monopoly of the legitimate use of force by both disarming the Badr Corps and eliminating the threat from Moqtada Sadr. Continued Escalations with Moqtada Sadr the first three months of 2004 were marked by gradually mounting tensions between the coalition and Muqtada Sadr. In January, several incidents instigated by Sadr nearly escalated into combat. On January 11th, an Iraqi policeman was kidnapped by members of Sadr's Jaish al-Mahdi wearing masks and Iraqi police uniforms. He was taken to a shadow court and prison in Najaf, where the Sadrists were torturing political opponents. Incensed by the discovery of the extrajudicial prison and courts, Bremer wrote to Olson that, quote, we cannot let this, quote, court and, quote, prison continue in operation, end quote, and signaled his intent to eliminate them. Unfortunately, both the prison and court were located in close proximity to the Imam Ali shrine, which complicated the situation enough to preclude launching an immediate security operation. As the CPA considered its options, Sadr accused the police responsible for the security of the Imam Ali shrine of corruption and sent members of his militia to occupy part of the shrine. A crisis ensued, as Grand Ayatollah Sistani demanded that Sadr's men immediately withdraw, but refused to allow coalition forces to enter the shrine to help eject them. The situation spiraled rapidly up to the CPA and CJTF-7 level as both local police and the Allied forces in MNDCS declined to act against Sadr's fighters, and it was defused only after difficult negotiations between SCIRI leader Abdul Aziz al-Hakim and Sadr that allowed the Badr Corps to take responsibility for the shrine security. Because of these and similar provocations by Muqtada Sadr and his forces, coalition leaders had vigorously debated the various actions that could be taken against Sadr and his organization. Among the issues driving the debate was the strong evidence linking Sadr and his men to the April 2003 murder of Ayatollah Abdul Majid al-Khoi. Sadrist leaders' inflammatory public statements also threatened to undermine the democratic direction the CPA hoped Iraq would follow. CPA Regional Coordinator for South Central Iraq Michael Gefoler advised CPA officials in Baghdad on January 7th that, quote, My recommendation is unchanged from before with regard to Muqtada Sadr and his henchmen. I strongly recommend that they should be arrested under the extant warrants issued last summer for the murder of Abdul Majid al-Khoi. End quote. Gefoler itemized a long list of the Sadrists' crimes and destabilizing incidents, concluding that failure to act was undermining the coalition and causing serious fear among Sunnis of a future Shia theocracy running Iraq. With regard to the second and third order effects of an operation against Sadr, Gefoler argued that, quote, Should we finally take the necessary action, I would predict several days at most of unrest in Kufa, Najaf, Karbala, and Amara. Other southern cities might be affected as well in addition to Sadr City, of course. I nevertheless believe, given Sadr's great unpopularity, that the unrest would involve a small percentage of the population and then wind down rather quickly. End quote. Bremer echoed this assessment in a January 18th message to Rumsfeld, noting, quote, Now is the time to take action in conjunction with Iraqi authorities to hold Sadr accountable. 
Although Sadr's arrest may provoke clashes with his supporters in the short run, we believe it will have an almost immediate salutary impact on politics in southern Iraq. End quote. A counterargument by those who were opposed to taking such action was that Sadr was not part of the Shia mainstream and that conducting operations against him would only likely empower him and raise his credibility. These debates were not limited to coalition officials in Iraq, as key decision-makers in Washington took up the question as well. David Gompert, the senior advisor for national security and defense in the CPA, proposed to Wolfowitz during the deputy secretary's January visit to Iraq that the coalition should ally with the Badr Corps and ask them to arrest Sadr and eliminate his organization. Wolfowitz supported the proposal and introduced it at the national level, noting in a January 21st memo that, quote, while there is definitely some conflict between our goals and SCIRIs, I think it is a mistake to overestimate the degree of conflict, and in particular, I think it's a mistake to think that they are stalking horses for the Iranians. End quote. The recommendation touched off a debate that included Abizade and Sanchez and the CPA, with Sanchez the least supportive of the plan. Meanwhile, in a January letter to the SECDEF, DOD policy officials argued that Sadr was the weakest of the Shia opposition to the coalition and should be arrested by Iraq's police to send a signal to other recalcitrants. As CJTF-7 reviewed its options in light of the policy proposal, Sanchez's political advisor, Catherine Dale, reported that, quote, Bremer's guidance is to clarify that the coalition is not reluctant, per se, to arrest Sadr, but note that the Iraqi police simply cannot carry out the action. End quote. She further noted that, quote, We already have a decision with regard to Sadr to be prepared to execute, and we are looking for an opportunity. End quote. For his part, Abizade was deeply reluctant to act against Sadr and his movement, concerned about the potential consequences of entering a fight against Iraqi Shia militants. In Abizade's view, it was important to maintain focus on al Qaeda and its allies across the region, the perpetrators of the 9 11 attacks. To go to war against the Shia, either generally or in the form of the Sadrists, was, in Abizade's judgment, a senseless strategic distraction because al-Qaeda, the main U.S. enemy in the global war on terrorism, was a Salafi-Sunni organization whose leaders hated the Shia even more intensely than they hated America. Concerned about the momentum building to take action against Sadr, Abizade wrote Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Richard Myers on January 23, 2004, arguing, quote, we cannot afford to divert military and intelligence capacity against threats such as the PKK, MEK, and types such as Sadr at this time. We must stay focused on what kills us. I remain perplexed at the constant concern from Washington, as conveyed by the Joint Staff, on problems that are peripheral to success in Iraq. End quote. Clearly concerned, too, about the nature of the instructions he was receiving about killing or capturing Sadr, Abizade added in his January 23rd letter to Myers that, quote, It would be best to communicate our orders in writing through you to avoid any misunderstandings on the desired way ahead. To the best of my knowledge, no written orders have ever been received on this subject. End quote. Myers replied with a formal cable two days later that resulted in CJTF-7 ordering the CJSOTF to draw up plans to capture Sadr and his senior lieutenants, naming the mission Operation Stewart. The Struggle to Formulate a Long-Term Strategy Page 272 in contrast to the insurgents and Zarqawi's nihilistic but consistent strategies and Iran's calculated actions, the coalition in early 2004 had trouble formulating a coherent countrywide strategy. Within CJTF-7 and the CPA, commanders and staffs struggled to formulate long-term plans given conflicting political guidance from Washington and an uncertain future for both organizations. At the same time, the CPA and CJTF-7 wrestled with the challenges created by being under-resourced organizations conducting missions and activities they had not expected to perform. Seeking guidance from Wolfowitz, who was visiting Baghdad on February 1st, Sanchez noted that, quote, Right now there is no Iraqi national security strategy. We need a long-term vision that will facilitate Iraq's independence, and we need to communicate that vision to Iraqis, end quote. A nonplussed Wolfowitz responded that, quote, 
Part of that vision is winning the damn war first. Writing nice papers while VB IEDs or vehicle-borne IEDs are still going off is like Alice in Wonderland. There is a disconnect, and until we are further down the road, what we need most is short-term thinking. End quote. Separate but related to the campaign plan were ongoing discussions on what to do with the Iraqi security forces. For Abizade, Sanchez, and Rumsfeld, establishing capable security forces seemed to provide the clearest U.S. exit strategy. Rumsfeld, concerned by a lack of progress in regenerating the Iraqi security forces, ordered Major General Carl W. Eikenberry to Iraq in January 2004 to report on ways to speed up the Iraqis' development. Having just headed a similar training mission in Afghanistan, Eikenberry found that the CPA's efforts were not effective for either the Iraqi army or the police, and that progress in the police force, deemed critical for success in fighting the insurgency, was lagging far behind progress in the army. Eikenberry recommended that the new Iraqi army be reduced in size as a cost-saving measure and because, in his view, quote, the planned rapid buildup puts at risk quality control, end quote. Eikenberry also concluded that training should be standardized for the ICDC, which to that point had been decentralized and driven by the various multinational divisions because CJTF-7 and CENTCOM considered the ICDC as a reserve or National Guard-type force that was temporarily mobilized for the ongoing national emergency. The report also recommended that all security force training be transferred from CPA's control to CENTCOM and CJTF-7 to create unity of command. At the strategic level, Eikenberry endorsed CENTCOM's plan to focus its main effort on the creation of Iraqi security forces, to which the coalition would gradually transition responsibility as a way to reduce coalition force presence. As Iraqi forces became more capable than they originally were, coalition forces would hand over local control and then regional and provincial control, theoretically receding into the background to provide strategic overwatch by July 2006. Rumsfeld seized on Eikenberry's report, seeing it as a roadmap to restart the foundering Iraqi Security Forces training mission under a new model. To highlight the importance of the training mission, Rumsfeld ordered CJTF-7 to, quote, give the highest priority to standing up capable Iraqi security forces and transitioning responsibilities to them as soon as possible, end quote, and directed Sanchez to change his command's mission statement to reflect the heightened priority. The resulting updated CJTF-7 mission statement included the requirement to, quote, organize, train, and equip credible and capable Iraqi security forces in order to accelerate the transition of security from coalition forces to Iraqi forces, end quote. While Rumsfeld rejected Eikenberry's suggestion to reduce the size of the new Iraqi army, almost all of the general's other recommendations were implemented. The Coalition Military Assistance Training Team, or CMAT, was wrested from the CPA and moved under CJTF-7, and a new sister organization, the Civilian Police Assistance Training Team, or CPAT, was created under CJTF-7, thereby aligning resources with responsibilities. A new military headquarters, the Office of Security Cooperation, would be created under CJTF-7 to oversee the military and police training teams and supervise the security force assistance effort. Because Eikenberry had noted that the police were equipped primarily with pistols and outgunned by the insurgents, CJTF-7 started to make changes to police training and equipping that would effectively militarize much of the country's police force. The holding of elections and writing of a new Iraqi constitution were also critical topics that prompted debate among U.S. officials. Initially, officials in Washington and the CPA had preferred to have caucuses selected by coalition authorities choose Iraqi representatives to write a new Iraqi constitution. This option would give the coalition the maximum ability to steer the new Iraqi political process. In June 2003, however, Grand Ayatollah Sistani had issued a fatwa declaring that the new constitution should be written by a constituent assembly directly elected by Iraqis. In December and January, Sistani had insisted that elections should be held quickly and that the new government that would accept sovereignty in 2004 should be elected as well. As U.S. leaders in Iraq and Washington searched for ways to preserve significant control over the process, SCIRI leader Abdul Aziz al-Hakim countered by requesting that the U.N. intercede, after which the veteran U.N. diplomat Lakhdar Brahimi arrived in Iraq to mediate. 
Brahimi formulated a compromise under which an Iraqi interim government would be selected by the Iraqi Governing Council and serve until nationwide elections in January 2005 for an Iraqi parliament that would form a transitional government. The transitional government would then draft a constitution, thereby meeting Sistani's requirements. Hakim and Sistani's efforts were both intended to reshape the Iraqi political landscape. For decades, the Shia Islamist factions had been blocked from participation in Iraqi politics and the spoils that came from it, and they were not about to pass up the opportunity to finally take the majority share of power. Abu Ghraib, the failure of detention policies. On January 14, 2004, the problems of the struggling detention program finally became clear when Sanchez was informed of the illegal acts and violations of the Geneva Conventions that U.S. guards had committed against Iraqi detainees at the Abu Ghraib complex in October 2003. Sanchez was told that there were, quote, pictures of naked prisoners, some of which are pornographic in nature. Others show the use of unmuzzled dogs, and there are even pictures of military police posing with a dead body, end quote. On January 19, 2004, Sanchez requested that CENTCOM appoint a general officer to conduct an Army Regulation, or AR-15-6, investigation. Major General Antonio M. Taguba, the CFLCC Deputy Commander for Support, was appointed on January 31st and provided findings and recommendations in a written report on March 9. Taguba's investigation revealed systemic problems and abuses worse than Sanchez had imagined. In gross disregard of the laws of land warfare, a group of soldiers from the 800th Military Police Brigade, an Army Reserve unit, had carried out numerous sadistic and perverse acts on detainees, including sodomizing them, stacking them naked, threatening them with dogs and weapons, beating them, and depriving them of sleep. Among his many findings, Tagaba recommended the appointment of a single commander for all detainee operations in the theater and additional training for all those working with detainees. Tagaba's report also recommended that Brigadier General Janice Karpinski, commander of the 800th Military Police Brigade, should be relieved and reprimanded, along with a battalion commander and other leaders who had responsibility for Iraqi detainees. Colonel Thomas M. Pappas, commander of the 205th Military Intelligence Brigade, who had been given overall responsibility for the prison by Sanchez in fall 2003, was also deemed responsible for the debacle and recommended for reprimand. Eleven soldiers from the 800th Military Police Brigade were eventually convicted of crimes committed at Abu Ghraib. Within CJTF-7, Sanchez and his headquarters had done everything by the book once the activities at Abu Ghraib had been discovered in late 2003. However, no matter how thorough the investigation they ordered and no matter how severely they punished those responsible, the fallout from the scandal would ultimately prove impossible to contain. As March 2004 came to a close, the coalition's struggle to find its way in terms of both strategy and countrywide plans was compounded by considerable turbulence among the coalition's key leaders and units, most of which were transitioning into or out of the country. Despite these challenges, coalition leaders remained unrealistically hopeful that the entire effort could soon be made stable enough to be transferred to an external multinational actor, such as the UN or NATO. Conversely, the forces opposing the coalition were developing long-term plans and beginning to execute them. Iran was well on its way to establishing a foothold in the Shia heartland, Zarqawi was initiating his plan to start a civil war, and the broader Sunni insurgency was coordinating well-planned operations. As the first anniversary of the invasion passed, Iraq was primed for an explosion. The pent-up frustrations of Iraqis, some caused by unfulfilled hopes of what the invasion would bring, some by coalition actions, and some by a simple hope for a return to normal, had begun to act upon Iraqi politics and security like a virtual pressure cooker. In April 2004, nearly all of the challenges the coalition was facing would explode simultaneously. End of Chapter 11, The Gathering Storm Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.